This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 23rd, 2020. We talk to lots of campaigners on this podcast. This one has a more basic goal than most. Let's talk to someone who wants to protect our food and water and hear what she has to say. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast, there is clearly an ethical issue with factory farms in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, animal welfare and so forth. But it's true, though, isn't it, that that's the type of farming that has massively increased the availability of food. So I wouldn't say it's increased the availability of food. I think it goes back to the same Hold on, hold on. They, they, they They are massively productive. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank my donors on Patreon. I appreciate all of them. For the people who aren't donors, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. I've talked about the other thing a couple of times already, but I'm sure that you've heard enough of it by now, and there's nothing extra that I can say that hasn't already been said, so let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the state of the world and its people. Bear in mind that life expectancy in the US in the year 1900 was about 48. Thinking of all the countries in the world now, today, taking into account the huge populations in the poor countries of Africa and Asia, what would you guess is the average life expectancy on the planet today? 50 years? 60? No, the average across the whole world is now 70. And again, across the whole world, what percent of the population do you think has access to electricity? The answer is 80%. And if you had to guess what percent of children had at least some of their vaccinations, again, across the planet, the answer is 80%. Finally, if you had to guess over the last 100 years, taking into account the massive population explosion we've had, what has happened to the number of people, the absolute number, not the proportion, the number of people who die each year in natural disasters? Has it more than doubled? Stayed the same? In fact, that number has more than halved. All these figures come from a book by the Swedish academic Hans Rosling, and he formulated them to show us that sometimes things are much better than we think they are. And, in particular for all our cynicism, things can and do get better. Lots better. By those metrics that he chooses, the average person in the world today is vastly better off than the average person was in the United States a hundred years ago. 
more children, much, much more children are getting educated. Much more people are getting basic health care. Much more people have access to the basics of comfort that the whole of humanity went without for almost our whole existence. Sometimes we can be terribly stupid, but on the whole, humans are clever and creative. We can solve problems. We can make our lives better. That makes it all the more tragic when we don't, but on the whole, we're doing better, lots better than we were, and often way better than we actually think we're doing. Sometimes we create terrible problems, but we can solve problems too, and we do solve them. And maybe with that whole loss aversion thing in our mentality, we remember our failures better than our successes. That music you can hear in the background is the Italian resistance anthem, Bella Ciao. It's being played by the National Theatre Orchestra of Serbia. But this is a recital with a difference. They're playing together, but they're not together. The recital was recorded over a live video call with a conductor and dozens of musicians, each playing from their own home. This technology would have been unimaginable just a decade ago. Now we take it for granted that it's in billions of people's pockets. Wash your hands. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Amanda Starbuck. Amanda is the Senior Food Research and Policy Analyst with an organization called Food and Water Watch. Amanda, what is Food and Water Watch? Yes, so we are a grassroots organization based in the United States with our main office in D.C., but we have offices all across the country as well as a European office. Mm -hmm. And we work with um, communities to mobilize regular people to build political power so that we can move solutions to our most pressing food, water, and climate problems of our time. That sounds like a really corporate way of describing it. Can you give it to me in a way that, <laughs> that, that, that a regular person, somebody not too bright like me would understand? <laughs> Basically, we're working with communities to try to, to change things. So a lot of our work is policy-related, right? So the powers that be, um, you know, whether mm -hmm. it be a state legislature or the federal government... Um, has rules and regulations in place. And it's very easy, I believe, for, you know, an average person to think, well, I can't do anything. Mm -hmm. But we don't believe that. <laughs> and so we, even though we do have an office here in D.C., we send people to the Hill, they have those big, important meetings. We also 
get on the ground with farmers in Iowa who are upset about, you know, the corporate control over their livestock industry. And we are on the ground with people in Pennsylvania who are fighting um, fracking that's encroaching on their land. Mm -hmm. And so really kind of getting people together and mobilizing them, helping them recognize that they do have a power to help sway um, to sway the policy within this country. Okay. And give me a flavor of the way that you're trying to sway policy. Do I mm-hmm. get the feeling that you're sort of hippie to be people who want to have the purest quinoa available for everybody to eat? Or are you <laughs> focused on making sure that, you know, people who don't have enough to eat have enough to eat? Or what's, what's your main policy concern? Definitely more of a ladder there. So one of our big things is we like to say that you cannot shop your way out of this problem, right? There have been some, you know, successful corporate campaigns to try to get, for example, hormones out of milk and Walmart and that sort of thing. But those are really very small incremental changes. You know, we believe that there needs to be a fundamental change the way that we produce food in this country, animal agriculture especially, um, and that means, you know, making food more available and healthier for everybody. So we don't tell people what to eat. <laughs> I mean, we have some documents on if you're interested in when you're at the grocery store, you know, what does a food label mean? You know, what are maybe some more sustainable choices? But at the end of the day, our personal dietary choices mm-hmm. aren't enough to really move things in the direction that we need to be going. Okay. And does that mean you're an environmentalist organization? Yes, we definitely are. Okay. Can you see how there might be a conflict there that right now, particularly in the United States, but actually in pretty much every country in the world, almost every country, not every country, but almost every country, food has never been so abundant to the extent that Mm -hmm. in Western countries, by a wide margin, the biggest problem for most people with food is eating too much of it. That is absolutely unheard of in the whole of human history across Uh tens of thousands of years. Aren't these really, I was going to say first world problems, but not first world problems, but 21st (laughs) century problems, problems that most people living in any other century would have loved to have had? Um, Yeah, so I'm going to take a step back, I think. Um, So we're not just about, you know, our solution is not to grow more food. Like we grow way more food. Then you know, then we need the problem when it comes to people being hungry is not having access to that food. And when I say we go way more food, like I mean we do need to um, think about future generations and a growing population mm-hmm. and how we're going to feed them. So there is some sort of you know ramping up production to some extent. Um, but we just our food system does a very inefficient job of feeding people. The fact that there are farmers and the Midwest who grow the majority of the corn that we have in this country and mm-hmm. they're on food stamps. So <laughs> you have people in um, cities as well across the country who are having a hard time accessing food. And so that comes down to a fundamental inefficiency of this system. Um, and there was just recently um, the USDA announced a plan to try to ramp up um, innovation within agriculture and they want to increase production by, I believe it was 40%, not really recognizing that just having more food is not necessarily going to get to the people that need it. So when you say people in urban areas, I can understand what you say, farmers on food stamps, which is really a startling thing, but people in urban areas not having access to food, do you mean that they don't have enough money? Or do you mean that there this concept people have talked about food deserts where there's very few quality outlets for food in some inner city areas. What are you talking about exactly there? 
Um, I was thinking more about the money, you know, having the means for food. Um, there's still a very continued reliance on what we call food stamps. So there are programs such as SNAP, and that is still very greatly utilized by both urban and rural communities. I was just trying to make the point that this is not just a problem in rural communities. That is a crop problem in urban communities as well. And there is that other part about the idea of a food desert. We really see that, I think, because of extreme concentration within supermarkets. Um, and so the idea of no longer having a small mom and pop store down the street, mm-hmm. but bigger grocery stores, they're going to want to move into areas that are more wealthy, where they can make more money. And that does, you know, cause some communities to be left behind. Okay. And isn't there then a fundamental contradiction between the type of uh, farmer's markets and people who buy at whole food stores and so forth, those type of foods that they buy are very fashionable with environmentalists, but they tend to be wildly expensive compared to other types of food that are available that people might buy in in, uh, a regular supermarket. And in addition, they often have huge what are called food miles that they're one of the reasons they're expensive is because they're being flown in from some distant part of the country or possibly the world correct yeah and again i think i want to draw that back to the idea that we can't really shop our way out of this so it's not about going to whole foods it's not just about supporting your local farmers um but not everybody has like you said that's absolutely right not everybody has the means to go to the local farmer's market and spend 20 dollars a pound on bison or what have you Um, so we need to fundamentally change our food system at the core so that it works for everybody. So that works for people who are consumers, no matter how much money you have. So it works for the farmers. So it works for workers within the industry. Okay. Give me that on a granular level. Then when Mm -hmm. you say fundamentally change, everybody's in favor of change. Uh, we've, (laughs) we've, we've, that, that seems to be the slogan of almost every political campaign, but exactly what is the change you want? The biggest one right now, I would say, is trying to um, end what we call factory farming. Mm -hmm. That is really at the core. I mean, there's lots of other moving pieces, but really at the core of why our system is very Okay, For for, for somebody who's heard the word Mm -hmm. but doesn't really understand or might not have a great understanding of it, exactly what is factory farming? Absolutely, yes. So we could quibble over the exact number of what makes a factory farm, Mm -hmm. um, but the big idea is... You know, it's not the old McDonald's farm from the nursery rhyme, right? It's not happy cows on a field and a farmer who has maybe corn over here and maybe chickens over here. It's a farm that is only existing to produce as much meat as it can, you know, regardless of the environmental impacts. Um, so usually it's, it's we're talking much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so a okay, so it's big. It's big. Big. Yeah, what, big what else is the, is the issue? Yeah. Um, yeah, so big. And we can talk about the exact numbers, but that's, you know, that's not as relevant as the fact that it's confining animals. So animals are not able to have access to pasture. They're not able to, you know, if you're a pig and a pig likes to root and all that sort of stuff, they aren't able to express those natural behaviors that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with that, there are many, many problems. It's not just an ethical um, standpoint, but also when you have these farms and oftentimes they're concentrated in similar regions. So Mm -hmm. for instance, on the eastern shore of Maryland, the broiler industry, which is meat chickens, right? So not hens laying eggs, but Mm -hmm. chickens that you raise for meat, super heavily concentrated within about six to eight counties within the eastern shore of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And when you have these big operations, they produce so much waste that there's nowhere to put it. You know, a very small, you know, we'd like to see more integrated, integrated smaller crop and livestock systems. These ones where you grow corn and maybe you raise some chickens and you can use that 
that chicken litter, that manure as a fertilizer. Mm -hmm. But when you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of operations all right next to each other, there's more nutrients that I could be used in the land. And so the state of Maryland actually is providing grant money for farmers to truck the manure out to different watersheds and apply because there's so many problems right now with the um, with pollution within the Chesapeake Bay. A lot of it stemming from these broiler farms. Okay, but and you and I can understand. And there is clearly an ethical issue with uh, with factory farms in terms of mm-hmm. uh, animal welfare and so forth. But it's true, though, isn't it, that that's the type of farming that has massively increased the availability of food. So I wouldn't say it's increased the availability of food. I think it goes back to the same question. Hold on, hold on. They, they, they They are massively productive. If more than a tiny percentage of people in the United States switched mm-hmm. to free range and organic type uh, produce, then there just wouldn't be enough food to go around. Isn't that true? I want to take a step back um, because you said they increase the availability of food. And again, I think it goes back to that question of just because we produce more does not mean it's getting into the people that need it. So I guess I want to push back against that. We're not talking about sure. Yes, that, that's, that's possible. Hold on, hold on, Amanda. Mm-hmm. That's possibly mm-hmm. true. But for sure as hell, if we produce less, it's not going to be getting to the, the people who need it. So I think the big, okay, so when we talk about producing food for people who are hungry, right? Mm-hmm. Right now we're producing way more meat than we need as a country and mm-hmm. we're exporting it to markets, you know, China and India, for example, growing economies that are becoming more middle income. They want more meat. Those are opportunities <laughs> to ship more meat out. So we're producing way more than we need. Mm-hmm. We need. If we're worried about, hey, if we produce less meat, is there not going to be enough food for everybody? We need to take a step back and look at how we fit inefficient this system is, correct? Mm-hmm. So are, are, you talking, about, are you talking about how essentially having a very high proportion of meat in someone's diet is inherently inefficient? That, is that what you're trying to change? Um, that's what I'm talking about, yes. So when it comes to, for instance, it takes about five and a half grams and calories to produce a calorie of meat. And that's just in general. When we're talking about beef, it's much, much larger than that. Mm-hmm. So if we really are in the interest of feeding people, not only do we need to address what I mentioned earlier, the availability and affordability you know, of food, but also how are we producing that? If we you know, have cornfields upon cornfields in Iowa and other places that are growing feed that gets trucked to a facility that gets turned into corn feed, gets trucked to a feedstock and, you know, feedlots in Texas, fed to cows, and then they are shipped somewhere else and processed. That is a highly inefficient system. We can feed Mm -hmm. a lot more people if we reduce the amount of meat that we reduce. We're not saying don't stop, you know, producing meat. I think animals do have a very integral part within um, a farm system. But Mm -hmm. if we are truly talking about we need to feed the world, we need to scale back at that level of meat that we're producing. Okay. That's a, that's a really that's a, that's a really you know that's a very well backed scientific concept that if the population essentially has a much lower amount of meat in its diet that is perhaps more environmentally sustainable it's certainly a lot easier to produce it and as you say it takes a lot less energy a lot less land to feed a given number of people if they're eating less meat but is it possible that you're trying to change people's behavior and failing, you're trying to persuade people essentially to be vegetarians or at least moving in that direction, failing, and then say, hell, well, let's just make meat a whole lot less available and then they'll just have to be vegetarians. 
So um, we're not trying to change, like I said earlier, anything about people are eating. <laughs> we're not an organization that pushes people to be vegans, to be vegetarians. We aren't an organization that believes that's what's going to change the tide. We believe that we do need to change the way that we produce meat within this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and animals do have a very important role on the farm. So if we eliminated all livestock completely, you know, first of all, it's not <laughs> logistically going to happen. Mm-hmm. But if it were... Um, you're going to need to source things like nitrogen and phosphorus, which are very important nutrients for crops, probably from synthetic sources, which mm-hmm. are generated usually by fossil fuels. So we're talking about scaling back, you know, returning to, you know, systems that we've had in the past, proven examples of, you know, having crops and livestock integrated together within the same farm, you know, not producing more waste, and I'm talking about manure waste here, than you mm-hmm. can actually absorb within the land that surrounds you. And if you were to describe an ideal situation that you were uh, that you were so successful that you'd want to just pack up your bags and go and find a different <laughs> thing to do with your life, can you describe what the food chain for the United States or for the world would be like mm-hmm. in that type of a situation? Yeah, so definitely smaller scale, um, no more factory farms, but still a place for you know a role for livestock within the farm system. Um, and there's so many other things that <laughs> need to be fixed. That includes, you know, overproduction. Right now we overproduce mm-hmm. certain commodities like corn and wheat. We don't have a stable supply management. We used to. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the farm crisis, you know, we started having a price floor and um, supports in place. The government would buy off excess that would help prevent price collapses in years of overproduction and years when there was underproduction, you know, bad weather, what have you, farm, the government could sell that back into the market. That provided a stable um, environment for farmers to thrive. Um, and we don't have that anymore. <laughs> and so those, a lot of those safety nets have been taken away. Um, and so not just, you know, I'm not just talking about a system that's going to work for us environmentally, that's going to mm-hmm. have lower impacts, but also a system that works for the farmers, because they are, frankly, getting screwed right now in this situation. You know, we are losing farmers. Um, right now, it's about 1% of the U.S. population are farmers, which mm-hmm. is just mind-blowing. And why is that mind-blowing? Amanda, why is that mind-blowing? Throughout human history, we have had, ever since ancient Greece, we've had an ever-declining mm-hmm. proportion of the population, having it started out at 100% when everybody was a subsistence farmer. But since mm-hmm. ancient Greece, we've had an ever-declining proportion of the population becoming being farmers and everybody else doing something else. And our society is getting richer. You want to stop that march towards progress? Um, so I wouldn't know if I would call that progress, and I wouldn't say that everyone's getting richer. So the society as a use... whole is getting richer. Actually, yes, even the poor, uh, even the poorest people in the United States are richer than people who live in a subsistence society. Well, let me put it this way: um, so the medium farm income right now in the United States is actually in the negative. So the people who are growing our food, and this is why I said it was astounding. The other mm-hmm. part of it I was going to mention is that a very, very, very small amount of people produce an abundance of food in this country. You would think they would be wealthy, mm-hmm. but they aren't. The actual um, average farm income is in the red. And the only way that farms are staying alive is not only from government supports, but also because most farmers have off-farm income, you know, mm-hmm. 
themselves or their spouse or their children work off the farm to bring money in so that they can actually stay afloat. Sure. Yeah, are so you sure that you I'm, I'm going to come back to that statistic that you said mm-hmm. that the uh, the average farm income is negative and averages the net average yes net farm income is negative. Is that because there's a small number of farmers who produce a huge amount of stuff and make quite a lot of money, and then there's a whole bunch of essentially hobby farmers who are people who have jobs in the city and come home and keep a few houses, keep a few horses, or maybe have uh, some other cows, and they bring down the average enormously? Um, I can't speak to that specifically, but the problem, one of the big problems is that farmers are not getting paid necessarily to even meet the cost of production all right mm-hmm. so um a lot of like dairy the dairy industry right now is in crisis in the u.s and farmers in michigan where we've seen this explosive growth in factory dairy farms over the last 10 20 years mm-hmm. we at the same time have seen a huge decrease in the number of farms. Mm-hmm. so farms are getting bigger and bigger they're you know, these big mega operations that are polluting the Great Lakes are getting huge and the average smaller operation cannot stay afloat because they can't even meet the, the um, cost of production. And you say that within commodity groups as well, you know, wheat farmers, corn farmers, soy farmers, there are years where what they sell doesn't even cover the bills to make that food. Okay. Can I ask one last question? Are mm-hmm. you an essentially party political organization? Because I notice on your website, you feature one a politician on the front page. That's Bernie Sanders. Are conservatives not allowed to be environmentalists? <laughs> um, that No, absolutely. They are definitely allowed to be. Um, and we have, you know, allies within farming communities, which, you know, rural America, middle America, where, where I come from, which tends to be a lot more conservative. Mm-hmm. So really, it's not, not about making this about, you know, red versus blue. And I think a lot of times that can come down to that and we really lose out what the soul of this conversation is about. And it's about the people who are growing our food and making sure that they are able to continue their livelihoods and making sure that they're able to produce food in a sound environmentally friendly way that it can lift up rural communities and i think that's something that we can all get behind you know unless you're one of the big corporations that's making money off of this polluting system i think most people would agree and that comes down to places like rural america which frankly is in crisis right Amanda Starbuck, Senior Food Researcher and Policy Analyst at Food and Water Watch. Thank you very much for talking to me. You're very welcome. Thank you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Food and Water Watch at Food and Water. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's March 30th, I'll be talking to the anti-abortion campaigner Fletcher Armstrong. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.